I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up, Rebels? What's up, Internet? Welcome to the world premiere of the Rebel Radio Podcast, Episode 1. I'm your host, Josh Levine. I'm the founder of Rebel Industries, and I've spent the last 20 years discovering, writing about, and promoting underground culture. Rebel Radio is a weekly podcast. I'll be talking with creative entrepreneurs about underground culture, mainstream culture, how underground becomes mainstream, how the mainstream wishes they were underground, the underground wishes they could pay their rent. I'll be interviewing the rebels who make culture happen and influence what you spend your time and money on. DJs, producers, rappers, graffiti artists, chefs, movie stars, really whatever the hell I feel like talking about. We'll learn how they stay creative in the face of all the distractions, the setbacks. We'll learn how to manage a business and maybe have a little fun along the way. Not going to promise you that, but let's see what happens. Basically, what I'm saying is let's have low expectations. That's my key to happiness. You can find us on rebelradio.net. Look for us on iTunes, YouTube, Napster. Don't forget to subscribe. Maybe we'll have a prize for our first subscriber. We're going to make a t-shirt or something, maybe a mug. If you want a Rebel Radio mug, hit me up online and I'll think about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Jay Levine. Cassie, do we have a show Twitter or is it just going to be my Twitter? Just yours. Okay. Sorry. I just haven't been through all this shit before. Like, I got a show yeah. and I got a guy. Just send it to the guy. All right. Well, this is our guest, Dennis White. You've heard his voice just now. Actually, well, I by the way, you know we're gonna call this part out. But well, you got you nailed it in Thanks. one take. <laughs> one take. Thanks. All right, today's guest is Dennis White. Actually, I shouldn't say he's my guest since we're recording here at his studio. So I guess I'm his guest. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming. Dennis is uh, a longtime friend of the show, friend of mine, uh, a guy I've known since the summer of 2000. We're gonna talk about that a little bit. His resume is long, so we won't read the whole thing here, but I will say he sold over three and a half million records, and you have not. 
He produces under the name Static Revenger and recently released a record under the name Latroit, which is blowing up. We'll talk more about that song. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. I'm excited to be on the first show, and this is a great idea, and you're the perfect guy for it. And I went to the series that you did, uh, that you were filming the series that was like a sort of live thing that people were going to, and that was absolutely brilliant. So yeah, this is great. We whittled it down to three people and you and me in a studio. I think that's the right essence. Should have just started there. No, no, no. Those, those were really good. I really enjoyed those a lot. It's just well, uh, you doing this here saves me having to go to Santa Monica. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, a bunch of things. But first, I have a little surprise for you. So uh, we know each other from, uh, like I said, we met in the summer of 2000. We did. In Dublin, Ireland, at the Red Bull Music Academy. You were a speaker, I believe, on the topic of, of the history of Detroit techno. Yes, sir. I was a guy just sitting there doing nothing, watching. I don't know if that's exactly true, but yeah. And, uh, and I was really impressed with some of the things you had to say. And actually, what I found here is my notebook from the Red Bull Music Academy 15 years ago. And on page one is Dennis White, Static Avenger. <laughs> Thank you. Because apparently I was paying attention. That's what happens when you drink too much Red Bull. And uh, you mentioned some really interesting stuff in here. Um, you, you talked about really, you know, the, the history of, of uh, Detroit techno, but, but, you know, beyond that. And so tell us about your history as it relates to Detroit and your involvement in inner city? Well, so I'm, I'm known primarily, I suppose, for doing dance music, right? And I w was born in Detroit and raised in the suburbs and went to school at Berkeley College of Music in Boston and then moved back to Detroit and lived in downtown Detroit, right? An area called Eastern Market. And so I moved into this loft building, and this is well before anybody was living in loft buildings in Detroit, right? And... I moved into this building and the month later, three guys moved in to the other three units that were in this building at the same time. And their names were Juan Atkins and Derek May and Kevin Saunderson. And, and these guys were sort of inventing Detroit techno in real time at that moment, right? So this was when Kevin had a, a couple of top five hits in the UK with Big Fun and Good Life, that was happening at the time. And Derek had just done Nude Photo and Strings of Life, I think. And this music made absolutely no sense to me at the time. None, right? So I had just come from studying jazz. And I was a kid with a rock band that wanted to be David Bowie or In Excess or something. And these guys, you know, had this music that they were making that I have to, I have to take ownership of the fact that at that time it made no sense to me at all. I was like, Derek, why are you using a TR-909? Don't you know the new Yamaha R whatever the hell it is has better sounding snare drums? And Derek's just like, I don't know if you and I should be talking about this right now. <laughs> yeah, but so it was, a, it was a learning curve or process for me, right? So in the thick of actually not quite getting it, right? So these guys are recording this music and I'm recording my music up, upstairs in, in, in my loft and this was a rock band, right? And... These guys loved live music. And Kevin had, with Inner City, they had become so successful that he couldn't just play track dates anymore. Track dates being like the DJ plays and the singer sings, and maybe there's a couple dancers, right? He said, we're, we're just, we're selling out these, these theaters. I can't show up with like that as a show. I need a band, right? 
And so he asked if I would help him put his band together. And so I just took my band and made it his band, right? So the, the mm. lesson kind of here is that I had, I would have assumed I had absolutely no value to those guys whatsoever. But it happened to be the thing that I had done that was complete opposite to what they were doing is the thing that gave me value in that instance. Let me take you to a place I know you want to go. It's a good life. Hey, so I put that, I put the group together, and it was also a group of guys that we understood music, but we didn't understand this music. Yeah. But we, we managed to, we understand technology, and we put the group together and found a way to sample the sounds from Kevin's recordings. And then, and at that time in Detroit, you couldn't get, you couldn't get 35 people. That's an actual number. Mm -hmm. You couldn't get 35 people to go see Inner City at a club really at that time no because the music just hadn't connected yet and the UK was very different so we did our rehearsals and the the group and I you know of musicians that I put together we did not understand the cultural relevance of what we we're doing until we got there and then we did our rehearsals in London and we were invited to go to sort of the club at the time it was called Shoom and it was either Oakenfold or Danny Rampling playing something like that and that was that was the moment going to that club and seeing them drop 808 State by Pacific State at the time. And the place just ap went absolutely bananas and we all got chills at the same time and then understood it, right? So it was, you know, it was like a little bit about music, but it was a lot about the cultural impact and what it meant to society at the time. And that helped me understand not only that music, but music in general, a great number of things um, better. Right. So if you could get past the face of whatever it is you're experiencing and try to understand its cultural relevance or what it yeah. means to other people, um, that, that's a more informed experience. So that was my foray into Detroit techno. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. You know, obviously, we think of music in very defined terms in terms of genres. Mm. But, you know, in some ways, music is its own language, right? And, and there is... As much as there are differences, there are these similarities and, and musicians no. from different parts of the world or from different disciplines can come together and, and connect. Yeah, it's a bit like speaking Latin or understanding math. Sure. Yeah, you can apply that all over the place. Yeah. So take one step before that, though. Was there, was there a record that made you want to become a musician? Can you think about you know the, the first record that, that you loved or that inspired you well the led zeppelin records made me want to be a drummer and mm. and which one in particular oh any of them whatever was being played on the radio really anything that wasn't sort of stairway to heaven but you know cashmere or rock and roll i mean i i, I got into the albums actually pretty quickly so moby dick was the yeah. john bonham solo right um and and then uh, fame by david bowie made me want to try to be a rock star nice yeah there was something about, i remember hearing that in the radio it was just like that scene from the jerk when he hears like uh jazz or whatever uh -huh. he's listening right yeah and all of a sudden he starts tapping his toes a little bit and all of a sudden his head starts bobbing and then he's dancing around like a fool that was sort of that moment david bowie fame funny yeah yeah that's funny for me you know i grew up with with hip-hop and with soul and funk and uh you know my like those songs that you mentioned are things that I sort of knew about, but I but I came upon them late, and so you know I remember in in 
was I in the seventh grade? Uh, Let's Dance came out, and that was my introduction to David Bowie. And as far as I knew, that was the first record he'd ever made. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, years later, I would go back and discover that. And, and that's really one of the things I love about music is that you can have that kind of experience in the time and place, but then you can go back through history. Yeah, because my experience is utter opposite to yours. So yeah. I missed like soul and sure. R&B altogether. Right. Right. 70 soul and R&B altogether. I mean, I guess I was experiencing it through Bowie. Right. Because right. sure. he was the first sort of white artist to go over <clears throat> legitimately in that world. Yeah. And then my experience of, of, of you know, the culture you're, you're talking about discovering in, in Europe is, you know, we had a small version of that in San Francisco, right? Where I would, you know, I was going to the clubs and seeing Doc Martin and seeing, you know, these guys playing this weird mix of hip hop and dance music and soul and funk all, you know, all sort of jumbled together. But I guess it was open format before they had a word for that. Mm. Um, but you know, we had this, this culture and I knew, you know, even seeing you in Dublin, <clears throat> I didn't know any of the guys you're talking about, ex except I knew one Atkins because of uh, a song he made called clear mm. in like 1985, which was a hip hop track. It was a, it was a break dancing track yeah. and you know, it was a classic in that world. And so that was, that was kind of my introduction to that, to that culture. Yeah. And that's amazing. And that was a super fun time to, to go to clubs and see DJs play because it was, um, you're right, it was open format before it was open format because then open format became a format, right? Yeah, and so right. we, you know, we'd play, Blake Baxter would play, you know, just a blinding straight up techno set in out of the middle of nowhere drop um, Purple Haze, mm. out of the middle of nowhere. Sure. And the place would just like have it. We'd yeah. just be having or just drop a Beatles track out of the middle of nowhere and yeah. just be having it. It's and then that great. went away, right? Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, Z Trip brought it back and a couple other guys, you know, in the in the early 2000s, late 90s, mm -hmm. right? They they brought that back and, you know, Z Trip is sort of rightfully credited with, you know, creating mashups or at least popularizing, you know, the mashups and, and starting a new revolution for DJs. But that, that goes back, you know, 20 years before that. Yeah. So, uh, so right after we met you, or shortly after we met, you put out a track called Happy People. Yeah. Which um, I think uh, this guy named Fatboy Slim called it one of the top 10 records of the decade. Yeah, that was, it was awesome. a big hit. Great record. Yeah, thank you. Uh, tell us about how that came together and, and what did that, what does that success do then for your career? So, Th that record came together. I had been in major label bands in the '90s in Detroit, and I was also a club promoter, right? And after the major label band experience, um, I was with lunch. I get a little name droppy sometimes, right? So I was at lunch with Carl Craig, who's one of the seminal Detroit techno figures, right? And we're having lunch. He's like, "Why are you fucking around with this band?" Right, just just make electronic music, man. Yeah. Just it's like one guy, and you, you you control everything. And what are you doing? And I, said, I don't know. So I fired everybody. <laughs> That's totally untrue. I didn't fire everybody. But when the band ran its course, I decided that uh, the way that these guys now all you know the techno guys were going into business. They were going into business. Like Kevin Saunderson, he's a great musician and a great producer and a great writer, but he did not go into music out of a love of doing that, as he tells me the story. Okay. He went into it 
when he met, I think it was like Derek and Juan, like they were making money. They were making right. shit tons of money just selling 12 inches out of their trunk directly to the, to the record stores. Mm-hmm. And Kevin was like, wait a minute, you can make money doing this? I'm like, yeah, lots. It's like, oh. So he was inspired by the entrepreneurial aspect sure. of that to do it and then did it, right? And so there was that that was the culture in in Detroit as much about the music but it was there was a massive entrepreneurial uh, touch point or connection to those guys doing that stuff. So my idea was all right, I'm going to not do record deals anymore and I'm going to control the rights to stuff that I do and then once I have that uh, like so promote it before I sign it mm-hmm. and then if I get any heat on anything then I'm in a position then to license it and do deals and, and stuff like that so the one of the guys that I started the inner city band with whose name is Duke Mushroom one of my great friends and collaborators um, he was the guy who had originally written happy people or started the idea with another guy named Sam Hollander and Sam Hollander is one of the, turns out, like one of the biggest pop songwriters of all time. He wrote like, Marry Me for Train. Oh, wow. That. Like, so <laughs> Happy People has a, a reverse engineered pedigree, right? Nice. So these guys did this song, had no idea what to do with it, said, yeah, yeah, take it, finish it, figure it out yourself, and, and, and so I did. And so then, uh, you know, released that with Stephen Melrose at City of Angels here in North America on a limited run, and then uh, it got into the hands, uh, Richard Vision, who's like a legendary radio guy here in LA, got it to the hands of Dave Dresden and Swedish Eagle, who then got it to Pete Tong, and Pete Tong liked it, and then it became essential new tune kind of status, which mm-hmm. is, you know, Essential Selection is a big UK radio show for dance music, right? Yep. And then it just sort of took off and became one of the big signings of the year, and then My Heroes, like, got behind it, which was a big moment for me. That was a big shift for me. So Fatboy Slim's in LA, and uh, some guy calls me and says, hey, man, Fatboy Slim's at this thing, and he wants you to come and hang out. And I was like, yeah, okay. I'll be right there. And I didn't go. Cause no, he doesn't. <laughs> just like, and then a guy calls me the next day. He's like, hey, man, Norman wondered, like, why'd you blow him off? I was like, what? That probably made him want to see you more. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But we got a good relationship happening after that. And uh, so funnily enough, on the subject of this song. So that was a big song for me. So what that does uh, to someone's career is yeah. like now people give a shit. So now you have some leverage and now there's a reason for people to want to talk to you and you might have another good idea. So people err on the side of being friendly with you. Right. 
And, uh, you know, that was a really important song. And my, my career, I think, legitimately started off of that. Yeah. So does that, uh, you know, you, you talk about the song coming together almost by mistake, right? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of stories like that. Uh, and then now all of a sudden you're, you're successful and you, you know, you got to recreate that. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, how does that change your creative process? It changes everything because you're not just fucking around anymore. Yeah. No matter how hard you want to try to convince yourself you're just fucking around, you're not. Right. And this song is a perfect example so I just followed pretty close to the same steps with the follow-up song, which was called Long Time, mm -hmm. which I didn't embarrass myself. That was a song that got out there. It was a, a great bit. track. If you haven't heard Long Time, pick and it up. Thank you. So um, followed the exact precise same steps. And even to the point where Fatboy Slim was playing it for a quarter million people on, on Brighton Beach, and every single thing happened that happened to happy people, except for I, I didn't get the record of it. Yeah. So, and it has been the case, having done this for 20, 25 years now, I have never, I've lucked out a few times and had like a bit of success. And every time I've had it, it was simply by fucking around and not having any expectation at all. And it's always right. the songs that you don't think anything of. I didn't think Happy People was a masterpiece when I finished it, and I expected nothing out of it at all. So, something about that creation state is mm -hmm. where things start to become possible, right? Anytime I've tried to do the same thing after having a hit or having something that reacted, not, never, ever, ever worked. Never, ever. Yeah. You know, uh, I was listening to RZA yesterday on the, on the Adam Carolla show. Yeah. And RZA was talking about how, you know, when you start your career, you are, you know, you're in the basement or wherever you are just being creative for free. And, you know, and then you get successful and then you expect, you know, he said he, he, you know, he bought a house in Paris and, and he wouldn't take anyone's call unless it started with how much money they were offering him. And it, he had to go through that process to realize that he'd gotten away from what had made him successful in the first place, yeah. which was giving away that creativity for free, working for free, hmm. and then, you know, hoping that it comes back to him at some point. But when when people get successful they expect to then get paid up front and you, it sort of changes the dynamic and he felt you know he made the argument that that was dangerous for creative people well it's 100 percent dangerous did he talk about what got him back on track or is he on track i mean i would assume if he's had telling that story yeah i think he argues that he is on track mm -hmm. um he credits is he that argument does he sound argumentative <laughs> no i'm back on track damn it 
<laughs> no, Rizzo's, don't you try to tell me I'm. He's arguing. No, he's he's pretty mellow, dude. Okay. Um, he uh, he argues that he credits Quentin for having a, a lot to do with that. Quentin Tarantino being really? kind of a yeah, you know, they work together on some movies, and they're okay. both kung fu movie fans, and they. Uh, He's been sort of a mentor to him, and, and he said... Really? He didn't go into great detail, but uh, anyway, shout out to the Adam Carolla Show if you want to check out that episode. All right, but that's interesting. That's interesting. So the lesson there is hang out with very successful and wealthy directors yes. and do what they say. Absolutely. And then be in their movies. R- right. Like, yeah. Hold on a second. Can you pass me that write Red that Bull down. notebook? I got to write that down. <laughs> so you talked about coming from Detroit, and uh, you are sort of a in a long line of musicians who have started out in Detroit and moved to LA, you know, going back to, to Motown, uh, to, you know, Jay Dilla, to Mayor Hawthorne. Uh, why, why does that corridor seem to work? And is there anything about like, how does being from Detroit impact your music? I don't know. I know that it does, but I, I, I don't know how. And most Detroit guys, interestingly, stay in Detroit. Mm. You know, I mean, sure. there's a bunch of us that came out here. I came out here because, you know, going back to what I said before, like, where's the rest of the money that's around for, like, you have a song and you own the rights to it. So what else can you do? Right. Right. And that's how I got into, I think actually you were the first guy to get me into doing a track in a movie. You got me the job of doing music for Osmosis Jones oh, in 2000, shit. 2001, something like that. Cause I you forgot knew, all about that. Yeah. Yeah. You knew the music guy at Atlantic yeah. or whatever it was. And I think that was the first movie that I, that I did. Hit us up on Twitter. If you've seen Osmosis Jones, if you're the one person that watched that movie, we'd love to hear from well, you. Well, it was a masterpiece. It was Chris Rock. Bill Murray, and William Shatner. Nice. Yeah. I had no idea. It was their finest moments, all of them. <laughs> I'm sure. It was. It was. Dream team. Yeah, right. So uh, that's why I came to LA. So you can come to LA. Like That kind of stuff doesn't happen as often no, in Detroit. No, of course. There's no music supervisors in Detroit. No. There are few of them. And so you know, I laugh often with my friends that do whatever for a living. You know, like, if I have my resume... And I walk around town here, it seems like I know what I'm doing and maybe somebody will talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Walk around with my resume in uh, Detroit. It's like, here's, I make this much for doing this. What do you got? Yeah. Like, well, we've got some tables you can bust, motherfucker. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So LA is a town like, um, you know, where you can really sink your teeth into that. But a lot of the Detroit guys that went over, like, like Kid Rock and Eminem and ICP and who else are the guys? Uh, the interesting thing is they just, they hold up, they stay put. Mm-hmm. They stay put up mm-hmm. in Detroit. It's interesting. And you're connected to all those guys. I mean, I, I find that interesting. Obviously, your music is extremely different from Kid Rock or, or especially ICP. Well, it wasn't at the time. So, like, Kid Rock, okay, this is a little name droppy, but Kid Rock was my band's opening act from, like, 89 to 95 or 6, something like that, whenever you guys signed to Atlantic. Yeah. So we, you know, we had mutual friends. We had been playing shows together for that amount of time. And it, so it wasn't, the music I'm doing now, yeah, maybe, but I was in a rock band back then, right? Yeah. And he was also, like, entrepreneur, like, coming from the same, same thing, same lane. And ICP, those guys who I have a massive amount of respect for, man. No one's worked harder or smarter mm-hmm. to build like a oh, culture. 
It's a cult, right? Yeah. Like, and they have been hated on since the very beginning. And, you know, back then, you're a young artist just starting, and that hurts, mm-hmm. you know? I'd take Joe aside and say, you know who else fucking got hated on? Led Zeppelin. Sure. Hated. Metallica. Hated. Early on, early on, you know, because if yeah. you don't come through that establishment, right, right, and you're doing your own thing, you just... Um, those guys were the security for one of my nightclubs. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when my band would do shows, we would do these big spectacles. I mean, it was a spectacle that we put ourselves in the middle of. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, I think that that kind of registered with them. And they just went straight spectacle right away. Yeah. And they were so wild music. Yeah. You know what? While musically, maybe there wasn't uh, an obvious association, there was uh, an entrepreneurial and cultural association. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I know those, I don't know those guys, but you know, I, I spent the nineties as a, as a talent manager mm-hmm. and uh, I was managing this artist, Dub C who had just finished with the West side connection and had a big, you know, they had a platinum record and, and uh, you know, big tour and all that. And then he was, he had made his next solo album and he, you know, he said, let's, let's get on a tour. And he wanted to go out and do something a little different. I think he probably said, you know, get me out with some white boys or something like that. And um, so, you know, we called around and there was an ICP tour and they wanted Dub C. They had massive respect for him and, uh-huh. and, you know, everything he had done. And he just, he he couldn't do it. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't see himself out there with them. And, you know, he, he was half wondering if like it was a joke they were playing on him. So that didn't happen. Yeah, you know, there, there's, not everybody's played along. A lot of people have, you know, yeah. a lot of people have. I, you know, like Chuck D and uh, somebody else. Um, but if you haven't seen an insane clown posse show in your life, you owe it to yourself to go to see this. Absolutely. Because there is nothing, nothing like it. It's like the upside down world of a church service. Right. I mean, yeah. this is a religious sure. experience for the people that are there. And you, you don't have to have a juggalo tattoo mm-hmm. to feel it when you're there. Oh, I'm sure. They have really built their own thing. I have the, uh, you know, that's another group that I just go, I just go to the mats for if anybody has any shit to talk about them because yeah. I've seen them build it from day one and it is astounding. You fucking try to do that. No, not it's you. unbelievable. No, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not mad at you. I'm not going to try to do that, no, by the way. I don't, don't think you should. I don't have the love for Fago that they do. Oh, my God. It's just astounding. And then Kid Rock. So, you know, I knew Kid Rock, or I knew his music in the in the 80s. He had a this rap record with Too Short on it, which I will say was not very good, but it was interesting yeah. what he was doing. And then, uh, so I was I went to see a show in Santa Barbara with Ben Gordon from Interscope, who's uh-huh. an AR guy at Interscope. And he's playing me this tape in the car. That, you know, this is back when you'd, you'd pop in a demo. Yeah. We're riding up to Santa Barbara together. And it was, and, and, I, and it, he called it the Twisted Brown Trucker Band. And I was like, you know, and I was a hip hop guy. I was a hip hop manager. And I didn't really know too much about the rock business. But he played me this record. And I was like, this is amazing they need me to manage them, hook me up. 
and he never did and it just never went anywhere but that but the demo was was actually the the first kid rock record the bot with the bot the big one yeah the yeah, rock one yeah it was and it was just an amazing record as a demo kind of to your point like he was doing his own thing he was going to be successful one way or the other yeah I, yeah so his first his first records which were sort of uh grit sandwich and yeah grit sandwich and yodeling in the valley and this is this is early 90s stuff that was you know that was white boy rap and he had a he had a flat top and and he he was a hell of a dj i mean he was a turntable oh, yeah? oh dude he was a hell of a turntablist and he couldn't have been 18 years i like old. to see some video of that i would too and i i i have some somewhere because now it's like a real laugh to have it yeah i i don't know where the hell it is but boy i mean he was good with the tricks and the oh as absolutely brilliant and then i, I would have him come on because my band had success before his band did we had this song that was regionally really popular right so we had these big shows and i would bring him out for a couple of the shows to throw down like 16 in the middle of this song our popular song or whatever mm -hmm. and we bring the beat down and he would come out i was the singer in this band right he would come out and blow me off the stage <laughs> the place would go bananas and it wasn't even his band he's just some kid who showed up and wow. his energy and his voice rah, i was like i don't i don't think i'm i don't think i should focus on doing this anymore because yeah. i'm not i i don't do that i can't That's do that crazy. I, oh man he was really good well and he still does it too you know i'm not i'm there's a lot of things that i'm maybe don't love about kid rock what he's doing today uh especially you his, don't have to but no, I, the, he certainly doesn't need my support, but, but, I, but I have seen him in concert recently, and it's still amazing. Yeah. It's still him up on stage, and he plays all the instruments, and he, he really, you know, he takes the crowd in. He is a talented, hardworking performer, and whatever happens after that, yeah. short of pedophilia, I don't really care much about. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Those other guys, some of those weirdos, fuck them. Right. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know who you're talking about, but I'm sure you're right about that. That fucking guy from the UK, that guy, like, uh, come on, that guy, I don't remember his name. A huge star that got hemmed up in Thailand for being a fucking weirdo. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know who that is. All right. Thank you for mentioning that. Hey, so, you know, you're talking about something kind of interesting with, um, you know, with ICP and Kid Rock and this, this sort of like, uh, you know, hip hop reached a point where it was very relatable to what I would say like frat boys. Mm. And, you know, that sort of then took on a life of its own with Limp Bizkit, with uh, uh, Linkin Park, right? This whole rap rock phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I kind of, I have this theory working that, you know, that was a crucial element of hip hop's sort of crossing over to the mainstream was when it became, you know, really accessible to these sort of, you know, Midwestern, uh, you know, just sort of mainstream white kids. Well, yeah, that was the Aerosmith run DMC record. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, and and that took a while, right? I mean, that, that yeah. was that was in the '80s, and then it, but then this whole rap rock thing took off, kind of more mid '90s. Mm -hmm. But that it had been building over that time, and meanwhile, the stuff that was really seminal to the hip hop community, like Eric B and Rakim, and you know, Boogie Down Productions, and and stuff like that, frankly, just wasn't. You know, it, it it wasn't frat boy rock, right? It was. It might be, might have been interesting to them, but it kind of wasn't the stuff that yeah. they could directly relate to. Hmm. And so, I want to flash forward now 
to what's been happening in the last few years with dance music and with dubstep. And, you know, I've, I feel like there's a, a little bit of an analog to that that's gone on more recently, right? Where, where dance music, you know, traditionally had been a little more intellectual or a little more insular, um, more sort of for the coasts. And, you know, guys like Skrillex really changed that, I think, and, and made, you know, there's, there's a genre called bro step, right, for that reason that it's, that it's sort of immediately accessible to that kind of mindset. What do you think about that theory? Well, uh, a couple of things. I think that Skrillex uh, didn't... He didn't create the bro step genre. No, certainly not. He did. He changed the game for dubstep and for music in general. Um, And sometimes when an audience or a demographic catches up to what you did, and it becomes so popular with them, but you didn't mean it, it's awkward, right? Because yeah. Skrillex, it's interesting about him because he's so popular that he ends up in this perception among some people as being the lowest common denominator because what could be considered as the lowest common denominator of listener is his biggest listener, right? Mm-hmm. And that detracts from the fact that he's one of the best musicians and and producers and one of the most creative dudes like of the past 20 years so well yeah but so i'm not saying that to take anything away from him no no i know you're not i know you're not but that's what ends up happening right well i think what happens is that you know what he does and i agree with you is, is super creative and innovative and it gets so popular that he inspires another generation of musicians to then build on what what he made them feel. Right. right. So yeah, I think the what I was trying to put together there is that there could be something new and hot that five percent of it is the thing that makes it go over to whatever that demographic is. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you do have a bunch of people that come that show up and they just laser beam focus on that 5%, which is usually the shittiest 5% of whatever of course. The, the interesting thing is, right? And then that becomes the genre and the thing, and that's what ends up speaking to a bunch of muscly dudes with tattoos and fake tans. And- but, you know, I guess part of what I'm wondering is, is, is that appeal to the, the fake tan set, is that necessary for sort of mainstream success in America? Yeah, sure it is. Yeah, I mean, because mainstream success means you got to sell a lot of records to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. right? And most of the people, I've never seen this show about the Kardashians, but I know it's a show that's on TV that's really, really popular. Right. So if you're going to sell a bunch of something, it's got to appeal to the kind of people that watch that kind of stuff or that that kind of stuff resonates with. Mm -hmm. I can't say I've seen... Paris Hilton DJ, but I'm aware that she does. Right. Right. And I'm aware that she's got a pretty lucrative thing going on. She was that person you were talking about earlier who you have massive respect for, even though. Uh, There are exceptions to a great 
many of okay. the things that come out of my mouth. Fair enough. And um, I guess with her, I would say, here's what I would say to defense of Paris Hilton, right? That I can think of four of the biggest names in dance music who are men who are as involved in their productions and their business as Paris Hilton as involved as hers. <laughs> and nice. those same guys push play about the same number of times during a set as Paris Hilton does. So yeah. to her defense, there is that. That's all. I get it. Yeah. Well, okay. What really interests me, though, is is not the Paris Hiltons of the world, but it's the people that are not famous, but who have a tremendous amount of influence over other musicians. Yeah. So Pixies. tell us about who? The Pixies. Okay. Iggy Pop. Okay. MC5. Right, I mean these kind of artists that you're talking about, yeah. like the early. Are those are those your personal influences? No. Okay. No, so who are some who are some that are not household names that influence were me. meaningful to you? Yeah. David Sylvian. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know how much of a household. Wow, well, I don't even know about. who that is. Uh, David Sylvian was a big influence on me. Um. Trevor Horn, but he was, you know. I, th I think he was popular. Brian Eno before he was producing U2, that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, jazz guys like Chet Baker. Uh, is it, do, you have a, do you have a favorite DJ? Is there a best? Who's, who do you think is the best DJ you've ever seen live? Uh, it's different. Well, what's different? I was with you. Okay, so the best DJ set, I felt like I could not even comprehend how good this was was the jazzy jeff show that we went to yeah. at whatever scion thing that was forever ago yep right and while that blew my mind like turntablists and that's why like, calling house djs djs okay fine right but you see a turntablist dj perform and that is like black magic to me mm -hmm. how the hell i know how both those records go and i'm watching what you're doing with my own eyes and I'm a musician, and how the hell are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Right? It blows my mind. But mostly it's a circus trick. Sure. Right? Yeah. Mostly it's like a drum solo, like a fast drum solo. It's not, you know, which is it's fine. It's cool. It's worth it for a little bit. But Jazzy Jeff was the first show that I saw where he was juggling that much, and he was fucking around that much, and you never knew it was happening. Mm -hmm. You didn't even notice until, mm -hmm. unless you were watching him because he was just constructing a seamless experience for the dance floor. So you could care or you could not care, right. but you were never distracted and you were partying your ass off or just dancing, going in so hard. And that, I think, I think that was actually the best, one of the best DJ performances I've ever seen. And that's why. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I interviewed Cubert uh, <clears throat> probably 20 years ago. Mm. And, you know, right when he was, he had just won the DMC and he was considered the best DJ in the world. And, you know, he said something that he was talking about all the tricks and the visuals and, you know, dancing around and taking your 
shirt off and all that stuff and mm. uh you know and he said uh you know the good a good dj if you close your eyes you shouldn't be able to tell oh, that anything's happening that's interesting that they never you never miss the beat oh that's interesting yeah yeah well, yeah then that's what i felt like was that happening has that not night. been held true in uh <laughs> the dj world it's not everybody's approach really, no but. absolutely not mm. absolutely not so all right let's let's talk about business um you know all these records that you've made over the years under the name static revenger mm -hmm. you've got a new record out under the name latroit yeah so and you know you're certainly not the first artist to record under multiple names uh you know that's that's always i think been a part of the music business yep and um but talk a little bit about how that works and and why it works and, and why why you made that choice well i think so what I found to be the case, and I'm not the first guy to notice or observe this or whatever, uh, is that artists who have had the most sustainable careers over a period of time is, have been pretty consistent about who they are and what they do, right? Their, their narrative has been pretty clean. Okay. And... So if it's just the way the world works, if a dubstep artist who makes dubstep, who has that crowd, it's just human nature. It's just the way fans think you know, for some reason. I mean, I don't know how it was for you when you were a kid, but if, if you liked rock and roll or if you were a real rock fan or a Led Zeppelin fan, you kind of had to hate disco. Those two things for a sure. period of time weren't going together. Yeah. And it's just the mindset of like, you know, I think that people that when they're particularly younger, when they're they're passionate about something, they're protective about it, and and they, it's great. And for it to be great, other stuff has to suck. For them to be right, it's like religion to an extent. You know, for my idea to be right, other ideas have to be wrong, right? Yeah. So that happens in music all the time. You know, if if you're known for doing one thing and you stretch off and do something else, sometimes it has a difficult. It kind of dilutes you run the risk of diluting your, your, your core thing or your core audience, right? Mm -hmm. I never really bought into that, so I slapped my name on everything. Okay. Right? And it's particularly, after, particularly after I like that, because I like that was an unintended pop success here in the States, right? So it was a big song on pop radio here in Los yep. Angeles. And, and being L.A., that put me in a bunch of pop rooms. And I was the, you know, the, the cute kid for a little while in these major label conversations and all this kind of stuff. So I ended up in like sort of pop world. And I had used the name Static Revenger on that song. I like that. That was a pop-ish sort of hit. And so I got pop associations now and I kind of bought into all the money I was going to make I like that my body rocks a rhythm you beat my drum hard I might just kick it kick it you wanna lick it lick it I love to stick it stick it from London to LA yeah that's a ticket ticket come on and kick it kick it I like that and I will say several of my friends Jesse Scumfrog in particular would just be relentless on me like you cannot put your name on a joe jonas record dude hmm. you just can't what yeah. are you doing it's like ah no it's fine you know what's money i'm gonna make it's cool man you cannot put your name on a selena gomez record what are you doing no nah, no nah, it's fine I, anyway 
he was 100% right. So all that did is dilute, with the greatest respect to any of these artists, right? I'm just saying that's a different style of music Absolutely. with a different kind of listener. And thank you for the job, by the way. But uh, it just diluted all of that. And then yeah. I had a gold record in Australia with some Australian artist, uh, Australian idol singer, winner named Stan Walker, who's a phenomenal singer, and I'm grateful for the experience, and that was awesome. Uh, but I chose to put my name in the artist line, and that I could have had the greatest record you ever heard in the dance underground, but DJs were not going to respond to that. Right. I couldn't get a promo opened from an underground DJ after that. That happened. And that's a good example of like, you're kind of taking a chance when you do that. Right. So when you say that you can get a record open, did you, uh, were you hearing that feedback? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, from the labels. Yeah. Right. They were real candid with me and they're like, dude, so you're not cool anymore. And there you go. Yeah. This, this was a few years ago. Right. So, you know, you take a few years off. I haven't done any pop production since then. Um, but the new song that I did uh, is a song that is not a sound that I have done before. And if Static Revenger does have a sound, it's more related to Happy People, which is a classic house track, right? Right. And so I made the decision to just be real laser beamed about what sound was going along with what artist, right? So this new artist named Latroit started off as a collaboration, funnily enough, with Duke Mushroom, who was the guy that co-wrote Happy People, who mm -hmm. was the guy that was in Inner City with me. I mean, we, so we collaborate this way to this day. And it was, I want to give him credit, that was his idea. Very clever, LA and Detroit, Latroit. Yeah. There you go. So uh, the new single is called Loving Every Minute, and it's a bit of a moodier, darker bit of business. And I would say lives, I mean, it's, it's melodic and, and hooky and could be on the radio in some territories or, or, or not, but it does have, uh, it's a very sort of of the moment sort of track. And I have not created a song like that before. And the other couple of songs surrounding that, I did a remix of the Kaiser song Hideaway that was also different from anything that I had done. So moving forward, um, I am going to be a little, uh, a little more mindful mm -hmm. of the way that the perception of a brand or an artist name relates to whatever music it's doing, right? So the next Static Revenger shit will be Piano House stuff, which is kind of the history of that and what makes the most amount of sense for that. Right. I have dubstep projects and trap projects with uh, producers like Sullivan King and, and Keswick that are, they're, they're great, but my name isn't on them, right. right? We have this other side project for that called the Champions of Justice. And that's, cool name. so, so each, each name is gonna have its own sort of lane. Yeah, and will you continue recording as Latroit? Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, the song, Knock on Wood, so far is going really well, and I've got four more songs with that mm -hmm. and it also you know enables me to you know get more more work out you know if you have right you know you got to give a song with one artist time to breathe you can't have like a song a month and expect a blog to just stay on that all the time you know unless maybe you're a diplo or something um but it's easier if i've got four songs it's easier to get them all out at the same time if there's four different names with them right 
Yeah, because people will play. They'll play songs from different artists. And yeah. They're not, not going to play a bunch of songs from the same artist. Correct. So, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense, the, the way you describe it. And again, uh, you know, th this is something that musicians have been doing for years. You know, it, in some ways it flies in the face of, of what we think of in traditional branding that, you know, you want to put all your your energy and your resources behind building a brand and, you know, you want to leverage that and, you know, you want as many Facebook fans as you can get. And if you're spreading that across four different artist names, right, that's just a different equation. How do you square those those two? I still haven't. Okay. That's the biggest pain in the ass to all of this. And my friends that are in the same situation, there's a lot of us. And so out of the middle of nowhere, okay, so social media matters. Okay, fine, because you're right. It, the challenge here is that you're, it's being diluted, right? So you can tell people, I could tell people I've got 80,000 social followers, but I don't have one following that says 80,000. Right. right. It's spread out about a, you know, around a bunch. That's why earlier in the show when we were talking about the Twitter to direct, like which one to direct, just, just, just one. as long as you can get away with just one thing going uh -huh. there, just do that. So, so do what you say, not what you do. Uh, so the, yes, learn from my mistakes, not yours. <laughs> and we Absolutely. should write a book. We should write a book called that. I love that. And so what kind of Josh, where I'm at with that is like, I was playing the game of having no association between artist names, but I think it so far, I think it actually doesn't matter. Like shadow child is, is, the new cool kid in deep house mm -hmm. and, and, and tech house in the UK. And he's been around for ages in different names. And he was Tom spoon before that. And he was, I don't know, Dave, whatever the hell he was before that. Right. And so there was, you know, they were real mindful to not have those associations until I think, you know, at some point people figure it out and more than that, they don't care. So he's not shy at all about doing a Dave Spoon set on the Shadow Child radio show on Rinse FM. Mm -hmm. He's just not, right? right? So now what I'm tr just this week actually trying to wrap my head around because I've got, so I've got, I think I have the largest ratio disparity between followers on social and chart position in the world this week. So the song is number three in the UK DMC buzz charts, which is, a good look if you're yeah. trying to do what I do. And I've got like 40 followers on Twitter. So what am I going to do? Jump on Twitter to my 40 followers who all know me anyway. And I probably already sent them a text and say, Hey, check it out. So no. So what I do is I jump on the static revenge socials that have a, a higher reach sure, and just talk about it. And so get all those things talking about each other, I suppose. I'm not sure if it matters. So if you're listening, follow Static Revenger on Twitter and also follow Latroit on Twitter, at Latroit. Sure. Or don't. Because what you need to do is follow more people. <laughs> I don't know, man. You and I have been talking about this for 10 years. I was late as fuck on Facebook because I just didn't buy it, mm -hmm. right? Because I was there. That's what happens. You're a certain age. You're there for the first stuff that shows up that is just bullshit. So it's like right. Friendster and then MySpace. And then I got to pay attention to this. And then I got to pay attention to another Instagram. God damn it. Yep. Seriously. I'm late on all that stuff because I just didn't buy it. It's like, who the hell cares? Well, that's the thing. I, I think, you know, it works. You know, people ask 
us a lot if, if those tools work, right? And I think the reality is they work for the people that really buy it, right? And if you're, if you're yes. passionate about connecting with your fans through imagery and doing that on Instagram, then that's going to come across, it's going to work, and yes. it'll make a difference. And for other people, it's, it's other things. Right. So my SoundClouds tend to do better than my Instagram. Right. Because my music is the thing that means I care yeah. about that. I don't care if you see a picture of my dog yawning. I really don't. Which is awesome, by the way. Yeah, but I don't care. Yeah. It's there for you. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, I get it. Um, give us uh, who have been your most valuable mentors throughout your career and, and what have you gotten from them? Well, my manager, Richard Bishop, would be one. And that's just wisdom of the way the world works, right? So it's great to speak with people who know more about something than you do, I guess. Um, you know, so this guy has 10, 15 years on me, and he's been in the business for 30, 40 years. And I, I don't, and I've been with him for 15 years now. And he's been right more often than not. Like, so for example, I remember asking him maybe 12 years ago or something. This was a little bit after Happy People. Hey, man, because we were talking about my entrepreneurial brain, and I think I'm so damn smart. Hey, man, where's the music at for a guy like me? You know, what else should I be thinking of? Mm -hmm. He's like, the music for a guy like you is to not worry. The, where the money is for a guy like you is to not worry about where the money is for a guy like you. Just make great music. Stay focused on that. You know, you know, stay true to your art. And uh, I was like, nope. <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> but if you look back at the time, I think that I suppose I have you to thank for this. I'm sure that you did this. Herb Magazine in 2000 put me in the next 100 issue, right? Mm -hmm. And I was in the top 10 and it was like me, Tiesto and maybe Cascade or something like this, right? We were all sort of like, maybe Marcus Schultz was in there also. We were yeah. all sort of doing the same thing at the same time at the same level, right? Now I'm not meaning to imply that I ever would have been these guys because they're quite successful now. But what ensured that I would not be one of those guys is that I was too busy being clever about all this other entrepreneurial stuff and not mm. just having the confidence to do one thing and stick with it through thick and thin. Sure. Right. So yeah. that's the other, I don't want to like ham it up about how clever I am that I was renting sound gear when I was a kid and all this <laughs> shit. Cause I think a lot of that was the glass ceiling to what I do. I, I don't think any of those three guys were overthinking any of it. They just did that and they mm -hmm. kept doing it for better or for worse, and that was their life, and, and that was the right thing for them, right? Yeah. Now, there's an equal amount, probably, well, there's a much greater amount of people that were trying to do that who are stuck DJing at 50 years old with a family because they're, you know, I was always Absolutely. scared shitless of that. I was. I was scared shitless of that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think makes this business so interesting is that there's not the right answer, right? There, there are shades to that, and anything taken to an extreme is kind of, is, is sort of not going to work, yeah. right? And so there are guys who are, you know, Diplo is as successfully as he is because he's an entrepreneur, right? And he's got, all, you know, he's got this festival and this label and, you know, all this cool yeah. stuff going. Yeah. Uh, and whereas a Cascade, you know, 
he makes his music and tours and does his thing. But how involved do you think Diplo is in that stuff? I mean, is is Diplo the guy saying, hey, like, I want to do this and, like, executing it? Or is, does he have people that work with him or for him that say, all right, here's what else we can do off of this. You don't worry about it. You just stay focused on the music and we're going to build this out, right? Uh, so I can't answer that for him, but my my sense of that and and guys like that is is it's a combination of both yeah it's right that it's got to you know he has to live the brand Mm. right because mad decent is diplo and and all the other things he he does again even though they may have different names there's still it's still him right and so he's got to be able to own that and sell that to fans and and that but at the same time yeah you need a team around you that can execute and that can be in sync with you right as you're developing that and you know someone like richard you're talking about is is obviously a you know a key part of that mm-hmm. um what about early on any any mentors i mean anyone who shaped sort of your your perspective well my grandfather and my mother yeah. i mean they on if i'm being honest they gave me the best advice <sighs> they gave me the best advice and and that's like because they were both successful entrepreneurs my mom's advice which seems real simple but dude like you know she had uh she was one of the people that brought the aerobic fitness movement to america in the 70s oh wow right so she was one of these people and, you know, it was her own business and she was a personality attached to it and in the papers all the time. And Jane like, Fonda is not your mom, right? No, Jane Fonda is not my mom, but okay. it was sort of like around that time, a little before, right? Cool. And her advice to me was make sure that what you do for a living doesn't define who you are to yourself, right? And I think a lot of people, what they do for a living does define who they are to themselves. So when your next record tanks, you fall apart. And if you, so you really got to make a point to create a distance between your product and what you're putting out there and you and your soul, you know, you do, Mm -hmm. you do, you do else you just fall apart. And, uh, you know, my grandfather's advice about finding the different places that money exists, uh, understanding human nature, um, was good. Uh, you know, not being funny about it. You've been one of the better mentors to me in my life. Right. Nice. So no, that's true. I mean, you, you you really have. So you've always been able to bring a balanced perspective to whatever I was going through, and and uh, you know even even to this day. So you've been a great one, and I mentor for a lot of young producers from a local production school called Icon. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's interesting the way that those kids become my mentors sure. because they understand music, this music, at an entirely different level than I do. Yeah. And those relationships have been really enriching because I think, you know, the opposite could be said, you know, for me, or the same thing could be said in the inverse for me. So we both get a lot out of that but it's definitely not just me shooting my mouth off about the way the world works young man of I course mean, yeah you know uh the guy that i co-host the the static fm show on edm.com with his artist name is fox his name is garrett so he how do you spell it uh f-a-w-k-s and uh he, you know he's he's been massively influential on uh, he would be surprised to hear me say it but he's been very influential in, in the 
in that way. So what I find is that you can, you know, if you're open for it, you, you know, you can find mentorship in, in a lot of different areas that you might not expect it. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I've had the same experience. So whenever I've been a mentor to somebody, they've ended up teaching me a ton yeah. along the way. Yeah. yeah. Which is a great, it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. This is our producer, Cassandra. She Hi. has questions. Okay, so you recently shared, I mean, you shared a story about how you were ingesting all this information, music, and you were spitting it out, but what you thought you were wasn't really who you were. What I thought I was putting out there right. was not like as cool or as good as, as right. I thought it was, right? So. Wait, and you know why? Remember that 5% reference we were making before? Like, Skrillex has this amazing new thing. There's 5% of it that resonates to maybe a broad crowd, and then there's artists that think they're Skrillex because they're tuned into that 5%. Right. I think it might... I was doing that. <laughs> Damn it! I would hear something great, and I would only get the 5% of it that everybody else got, and then I would do that, right. and I thought I was... right you know, Iggy Pop, but I was fucking David Cassidy. Right, and then when you're messing around, then those moments of genius came about, right? Well, I'm not, thanks for that. I'm not calling a moment of genius myself, but the moments that ended up, you know, working or resonating, yeah. Right, so the question then is, how do you get to the best you? Yeah, I, I have no idea. If I was a smart ass, I would say like, you know, some tequila, and you know, right. I would say something funny. For some people, that works. But 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 interestingly, for some people, they think it works. Mm. It's like it's like people that uh, smoke a bunch of weed or maybe take an e tab and then interact with music, and mm -hmm. they think the music's great, right. but it's not. It just feels great because whatever the chemicals are going on in the brain makes you could be listening to anything, and it would sound incredible. So. So there's a there's a Family Guy episode where Peter and Lois get high, and then they write a song for this talent show, and they go up on stage and perform it. And then after it cuts to what it was really going on stage, and it, it's a great analog for what you're talking about. <laughs> I really want to see that. All right, so I uh, I don't I don't know uh, other than to just show up and sit down. And, and do it, yeah, right? And do the there, work. there isn't like a path or a process. Mm. There's not candles or a meditation <laughs> or a thing. It's like sort of sitting down. Um, I like to sit down thinking I have an idea. Usually, you know, producers are, are people work differently. Some sit down and with no idea at all and then just start messing around and see what happens. I find it more helpful to me to come in with an idea, which is almost never what I end up with. Mm -hmm. But at least I sit down and say, okay, I'm doing this. Right. And I'm gonna build on on this thing. But the consistent answer to that is to I don't just sit down and, and actually put yourself in a position to, to do it or be able to do it or have to do it sometimes. Right, yeah, I find it really interesting. Like Kendrick Lamar just, came out with an interview on his new album and he said whenever he's working on a new album he doesn't ever listen to his old music he won't ever like listen to it hit replay or whatever he's just totally focused on what he's doing right now and I thought that was really interesting as part of the creative process like for him it's about being all in in that zone 
and not even referring back to what he was before yesterday. Well, like, that makes a lot of sense to me also. That resonates with me. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was really cool. So for some people, they have like, it's a very sacred thing. The only time I ever had an actual process that I actually would follow was in the 90s when I was a major label artist and we were doing album projects, right? So you get an amount of money and you gear up to make an album over a period of months. And I would travel to countries where I didn't know the language, right? And immerse myself in that two things happened for me when I was doing that. Uh, I would go to the more lyrical countries, so like maybe Spain and Italy and, and um, Japan in particular. Japan is a very cadenced, rhythmic and lyrical mm -hmm. language, right? So immerse myself in that. And when you don't understand what anybody's saying at all, you can just, all you're digesting is the actual tonality mm. of what you're hearing. Yeah. Right, so I would get a lot of melodic ideas from that. That's the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened That's is really when cool. you don't know what anybody's saying, there are other parts of your brain that have to hypercharge to just get through the process of ordering something. Sure. Right. So now all of that is really alive, and then I would be open. Something in that process then mm. would really open me uh, creatively. Yeah. So if I ever had one, it's sort of an elaborate one. <laughs> yeah, go to Italy for a month. Right. Um, <laughs> If I ever had one, it would be something like that. So I guess the analogy would be to throw yourself into something unfamiliar where your brain just has to charge. Mm, yeah. yeah. we, mm. Josh and I recently had a conversation with a guy at one of our networking events. And I asked him, like, how are you so creative? You have the coolest job. You're in innovation. He's like the head of innovation at some company. And he goes, I just traveled the world. And so what you're saying is right. Like something about your brain just has to think differently than you normally wouldn't think. That's interesting. And only being in that environment would cause that. Can you imagine the pressure of the word, like, person in charge of innovation I, that I a big totally company agree. would give you every day? Like, every, <laughs> I, okay, I got to have some great ideas that no one's had before. Yeah. Ah! Yeah, although it's usually a job that they... They sort of don't expect too much out of it, so they, they kind of, like, needed a title for this guy, and they stick him in a closet. Okay. Sounds great for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it actually is, it's, you know, that, obviously that's not true all the time, but it is kind of a dream job. Like, no, you know, they, they count you as this wizard, and if, something, if you actually do something, then everyone's pleased. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's the job we need. Yeah, all right, I'm available. <laughs> hey, uh, who else would you like to see us have on the show? Um, I think a great number of your friends, actually. Right, so you talked about maybe trying to get Shepard on, which would be outstanding, right? I think Roker's got Shepard Ferry, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. I think Roker's got a bunch of stuff to say that would be very interesting. I think Jason Bentley would have a lot of stuff to say that would be very interesting. Um, if you could get Richard Bishop, that would be a great one. That cool. Would, I mean, I don't know when he has twenty minutes out of his day, but I if you turn it like into a do it. Recorded over a sushi bar or something like that. I think you might get something out of them. It's a good idea. Richard, we're coming for you. Yeah. Um, that, so that's an artist. That's a writer. That's great. I appreciate it. If you're listening and if uh, there's anybody that you'd like to hear on the show, write us a comment. Send get Aoki. Steve Aoki. No, no, get him. You're friends with him. And, and we watched him build that Dimac thing from like parties at a Greek restaurant. Unbelievable. No, seriously. He, I mean. That, it's unbelievable. 
that guy, yeah, get him. He's great. Really All right, Steve Aoki, if you're listening, come <laughs> come down to the studio right now. We want to interview you. I got another song to play for you, homie. He's he's been so great to me. Like you know, he's always an instant response. He signed a couple of my records. He did a cameo in one of my music videos. Bless that guy's soul. Definitely. All right. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate you being my uh, my guinea pig on our first episode. So should we start recording one? <laughs> All right. So uh, yeah, man. Thank you very much for having. Uh, me over to my studio absolutely <laughs> this, this has been great i'm sure you're going to be a great success this is a fantastic format and uh thank you thanks check out static revenger on soundcloud check out latroit loving every minute check out static fm on the edm network and this has been josh levine with rebel radio check us out next time <laughs> <laughs>